Why don't you open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 1. My guess is that shouldn't be a tough one for you to find. And always, like I do when we start out on a new book of the Bible together, I want to encourage you to be reading this book at home. We're going to take at least a while to be going through Genesis together. So my guess would be you'd be able to make your way through this book probably a few times between now and when we wrap up our study of Genesis together. And I promise that'll be a wonderful benefit to you uh, because the book of Genesis is just an incredible uh, picture of who we serve, the God uh, of those of us who believe in the scriptures. John Calvin once wrote that today all sorts of subjects are eagerly pursued, but the knowledge of God is neglected. Yet to know God is man's chief end, and it justifies his existence. Even if a hundred lives were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. Amen. The aim of our lives should be to know God. And today we're going to seek to do just that. We're going to seek to know God better, and hopefully in knowing him better, we would also come to love him and treasure him more. And so let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 together. In the beginning, God. We're just going to stop right there. That's it. That's all we need this morning. In the beginning, God. And let that sink in for just a moment. You know, every culture, every people group through human history has had some kind of explanation for the origin of all things. I mean, even today in our modern era, we have an origin story, right? The secular one is the Big Bang, the theory of evolution. How did everything come to be? But I want to point out that this is not just one story among many stories of how things might have come to be. No, this is truly how it all began. And it began with God. This is an origin story that transcends all other origin stories. And it's transcendent because it's not man's best guess. It's not us taking a look at what we can see with our eyes and determine with the tools that we have through something like science or reason. This is a revelation from God. When we seek to know what happened in the beginning of all things, we're seeking to undercover or uncover what we might call primeval history. History before mankind was on the scene to keep a record of these events. And the Bible teaches us that we can, in fact, know what happened in the beginning with certainty because God himself was there in those moments at the beginning, and he has revealed to us what took place in the moments of creation. Moses recorded this book probably around 1500 B.C., But it's a record that he received directly from God himself. I suspect it took place in those chapters of Exodus, chapters 33 and 34, when we learn that Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would meet with God face to face. And as we read this historical account given to us from God himself, in the beginning what we find is our own selves face to face with God. In other words, this is a story, first and foremost, that is about God, a true and historical account of his works and what he did. And the purpose of this book is so that man might know God who was there in the beginning. And you know how the sentence ends, I'm sure, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to get to the creation part of the story next week. 
Today, we've got more than enough material to deal with in just the phrase, in the beginning, God. What we see right from the start is that man was not there in the beginning. Man did not create himself. Man is not the central character of the story. Neither did the universe create itself from some collision of particles. Only God was there in the beginning, and there was nothing else. And this is how the story starts. And the foundation that it lays for us, that God was in the beginning, it undergirds every page of Scripture and every moment in the history of the cosmos and every moment of the story of humanity. It touches every aspect of creation, both material and immaterial. And the simple phrase sets this trajectory for the rest of the story of Genesis, who God continues to reveal himself to be to Abraham and his descendants. It sets the stage for the rest of the Bible, all of human history, and in fact, all of human knowledge. Everything that you know and comprehend has its origin even here. Again, that brilliant theologian John Calvin, I think he's really helpful here. He writes this, not only does God sustain this universe as he once founded it by his boundless might, regulate it by his wisdom, preserve it by his goodness, and especially rule mankind by his righteousness and judgment, bear with it in his mercy, watch over it by his protection, but also that no drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness or power or rectitude or of genuine truth which does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause. Thus we may learn to await and seek all these things from him and thankfully to ascribe them once received to him. You might have to go back on the live stream later and listen to that again. That's heavy. So in an effort to know God more, that we might love him more and adore him more, I want to just mine these four words together with you this morning for as much as we possibly can. So we're going to set the stage for our study of Genesis by drawing out several things that we learn about God from this simple phrase, in the beginning, God. All right, so here we go. We learn that our God chooses to be known. Our God chooses to be known. The God we serve tells us about himself so that we might know him and therefore in knowing him, love him. He's not chosen to remain a mystery. He's not chosen to remain aloof from us. And actually, I point this out quite often that God has made it relatively simple for us to know him. He pretty much crammed it all into one book for us. And the truth is, we could know nothing about God unless he were to reveal it to us. And this is exactly what we see him doing as he gives us this historical account of what took place in the beginning of all things. Um, I have four little children. They would know nothing about the history of our family, their mom and dad, and what happened before they began to become cognizant of the world around them unless I told them. And it's fun as a parent to tell your kids some of the primeval history of their family, how their mother and I met on a missions trip in the Dominican Republic. It's fun to tell them the circumstances around the day that they were born and how that crazy story unfolds, like the fact that for my twins, their mother was doing Zumba an hour before they were born. And I desire my children to know these things because it helps them understand their context, where they come from, and who their parents are. 
And in the same way, our God has chosen to reveal to us the origin story of the world, that through knowing our origins, we might, in fact, know God better. And of course, people will say, well, you can't know the invisible God. You can't know an immaterial God who is spirit. But there again, we see the reason why God would tell us these things, so that we can, in fact, know the invisible God. He's providing for us proof that he exists when he tells us that in the beginning God was and God created the heavens and the earth. And then you can look around you at this incredible material world that we live in, in all of its glory and splendor. You know, the stars in Arizona are beautiful. The Grand Canyon, almost incomprehensible when you stare at it. The dust storms that shake the windows of your house. The delicate flowers that bud after those rains. The complexity of the human civilization that we live in. And the delightful sound of a baby laughing. All those things. All that glory, all that wonder is one more form of revelation from God that in the beginning he was. And all of this is now because he is. And from the heart and mind of God, every other glorious thing finds its existence. And it points the, the humble human soul back to the creator. And our God delights to reveal himself. And so he tells us that in the beginning, he was there. We also learn in these words that our God is a trinity. Believe it or not, just in those four words in the English. I guess I should say just in the first verse. God is one and God is three. Or better yet, to quote a theologian who says it better than I ever could, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. There's a really interesting phenomenon in the first three verses of Genesis where God begins to reveal himself in Scripture. The first word that we encounter for God in Genesis 1-1 is the word El. But what I find really fascinating about Genesis 1-1 is that the text doesn't use the singular El. It uses in Hebrew the plural Elohim. So we could take this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we could actually rightly translate it, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. But we're not plural or polytheists, we're monotheists, and so connected to that verb or that noun, Elohim in plural, is the singular verb to create, bara in Hebrew, and that word is singular. So you have a plural noun, Elohim, with a singular verb, bara. Thus, God creates, God alone in one creates. The God who is three in one creates a material world with diversity, a wide range of different kinds of life, different uh, aspects to his creation. And in that world, he makes his crowning creation mankind, and he makes them male and female, one species with a great and wonderful diversity that in a very small way reflects the glory of God in his Trinitarian nature, in his own unity and diversity. And in this Trinitarian revelation of himself, here in Genesis 1-1, we also see that God shows up in the first verse, in the beginning God, 
and the Spirit is there, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and the Word through whom God speaks creation into existence, we're told in John chapter 1, is the Son of God Himself. We also learn that this God is pre-existent and everlasting. In a lot of ancient creation myths, if you've read any, any of them, Enuma Elish and those kinds of things, what we find is not an origin story of creation, but we find the origin story of the gods themselves. But in this historical narrative given to us by God, we are only told about the beginning of creation. And the reason is because the God who made all things has no beginning and he has no ending. He was before there was anything. And in his own perfect being, he has existed for eternity past, enjoying being himself and enjoying being in Trinitarian relationship with himself. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we learn in Genesis 1-1 that our God is a creator. That's obvious, right? For the sheer joy and glory of it all, God made this material world from nothing because he is the author of life. God's not a destroyer. God does not delight in darkness or chaos or death. Like some of the ancient pagan gods who were the gods of death, that's not our God. Instead, from nothing, God the creator makes everything so that all that is all that is might exist to the praise of his glory. And even at the end of time, as we know it, God's intention is not to destroy what he has made. Despite our best efforts to ruin what God made good, God's intention at the end of this, because he is glorious and a brilliant creator, he's going to remake all things. He's going to renew all things. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth to fulfill his purposes. But it's going to come from the substance of this creation. It's going to be a re-creation. And in this act of creation where God was in the beginning, we learn that he's the first actor in all things. You know, in some circles, people talk very passionately about man's free will and autonomy. Autonomy is the word of our secular age. But let me ask you a question. What meaning does your autonomy and your free will have if you were not there in the beginning? Think about the implications of that for a second. Did you will yourself freely into existence? Were you born even by the will of man? Yes, maybe your mother and your father came together, but did they actually have any power to create you? More importantly, where were you when God formed the mountains? When he built the foundations of the world from nothing and brought the atoms of the universe into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing? Do you really believe that your will and your autonomy is greater than this God who existed before the oceans were laid in their cradles and the mountains were made to touch the sky? You know, I'm not suggesting that you don't have freedom of choice or that you don't have moral culpability before this God. You do, in fact, have real agency. That is true. 
I'm only saying that if God had not first acted to bring about this material world and then later sovereignly form you into existence in your mother's womb, then you simply would not be. And in the face of the God who made all things, truly your free will and your autonomy means nothing. Because without his initiating creative power, you would not even exist as a thought or a possibility. You have a will because God gave it to you. And if that thought doesn't humble you, then I don't know what could humble you. You exist only because in the beginning, God. And we learn that this God is powerful. If that wasn't already obvious, uh, consider the, the ancient historical context from which this story comes to us, where foolish men worshipped the sun and the moon as gods. They looked in the sky and they thought, what could possibly be greater than the sun? And in the true account of primeval history recorded for us by God himself, here in the pages of Genesis, we see that before the sun and the moon dominated the sky, our God was. He is the God who makes all things that foolish men in their pride bow down to and worship as idols. He's the one who lit the first fires of the sun and who chained the moon to the gravity of the earth. He's the one who spread out trillions and trillions of stars across countless billions of light years of space. And he did it like a child tossing sand on the cement. We also learn that because in the beginning God, before anything was made, our God is independent and distinct from everything that is made. All of creation could cease to exist and this would bring no harm to God. It would affect him in no way. It would diminish his being not at all. It would affect his glory in no way. His wisdom or his power would be untouched if creation ceased to exist. And you've probably heard me say, or maybe you've heard other preachers say, context is king. Context is king. In other words, when we study the Bible, it's important that we keep each verse in its context. Terrible things happen when we take verses out of the Bible and just randomly apply them to our lives. Like Judas hung himself. Don't do that. In other words, we need to know how the parts connect We need to factor in what comes before and what comes after in order to really understand what each verse means. But notice, there's no verse before Genesis 1.1. In other words, God needs no context. There is no context for God except God himself. Nothing can come before and nothing can come after which can add anything to God himself. He is utterly independent. And this is hugely significant because all too often man in his hubris and pride attempts to use man as a context for God. And if the being of God is somehow dependent upon what man thinks or man believes about him, then he's not in fact God. As if it was possible for us to make or define God in our image. It's the other way around. God is the context for us. God is the context for my life and your life. God defines himself. And God defines all of creation. And God defines humanity. You are dependent upon God. The meaning of your life 
the meaning of your existence, the fact that you are, the nature of who you are. God is the context for all of that. Our self-referentialism, it's undone before this God. He is. And we only are because he ordains it to be so. We are codependent upon him and all that exists in all creation, both material and immaterial, it's all codependent upon this utterly independent God who made everything from nothing simply by the word of his power. And it's actually even more astounding than that. When I was a little kid, I remember making a diorama of a beaver and a beaver's dam, you know, maybe in like third grade or something like that for a school project. God exists outside of his creation in somewhat the same way that a person might exist outside of a diorama they make. The complexity and the existence of the creator is so far beyond and outside that little still scene contained in the shoebox. God's being doesn't even consist of the same stuff with which he created the universe. So far beyond us is this God. Everything God created is ultimately distinct from him and ultimately, therefore, dependent upon him. And it's all his to rule over. It is all subject to him. Which brings us to the next thing we learn, which is that God is the ruler of all that is. The potter is sovereign over the clay. You just heard from Isaiah. It's his to shape and mold as he sees fit. No one was there with God in the beginning to advise him or to offer critical theories of his work or to encourage him to maybe build on this in a little bit different way. More than that, this potter not only molds the clay in whatever way he sees fit, he actually makes the clay. This God has determined the days and the years of every life. He placed the mountains on their foundations and he carved the valleys by his might. He knows the beginning from the end. He establishes the thrones of kings. And in his time, when he sees fit, he tears them down. He's the Lord of all, the ruler of all. And there's not a single person or power in all of creation who rivals his authority. Before this God, nothing in all of creation has any right you have no right. You have no recourse to judge his actions. You have no entitlement that is due to you from him. You have no exemption from his rule. You cannot cast off his authority. You cannot rise up in rebellion against him and be successful in that no matter how hard you try. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all rule and power and authority belong to him because he owns the property of every atom in the universe to do with as he pleases. Furthermore, we learn that this God is utterly transcendent. Where in all of creation will you go to find this God? If you have an issue with him, what door will you knock on to find him to express your displeasure? This God exists outside and beyond everything that is made. He lets us call him God or Yahweh. But the truth is, we don't even really know his name or the language that he speaks in order to address him. 
The Holy Spirit has to translate that for us. How could you bring any complaint against him? His eternal existence, his Trinitarian nature, his power and wisdom and love, they're not concepts that your brain could even begin to scratch the surface of if you had a thousand lifetimes to study and learn. His justice, his mercy, his grace, his limitless creative power are no more fully comprehensible to you than particle physics is understandable to my dog. And all the libraries on earth could offer only the most basic introduction to the nature and character of God. If God's Wikipedia page were to actually attempt to do him justice, it would break the internet and melt the servers. And yet we also learn that this transcendent God is imminent. In making creation, God has come close to us. He's formed us in his image. He chose to reveal himself to us that we might know that in the beginning, God was. And although he's transcendent, this God is also kind and humble, that he's allowed this creation that he's made to even think thoughts about him. What a great grace that is to consider his majesty. What a kindness that is. We may not know him fully because he's transcendent, that's true, but we may indeed know him because he is imminent. And we know from the rest of Scripture that it's even greater than that. Because this utterly transcendent God chose to reveal himself in an even more incredibly humble way by stepping into this festering mess of a world that we've made of his creation in order that he might embrace us in love in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son in the flesh. But we can't skip ahead because we've still got more from our four words. We might at this point ask the question, why? Why on earth did God create This God needs nothing. He lacks nothing. Nothing can complete him. Nothing can add joy or satisfaction to him. He is complete in his fullness. So why? Well, the scriptures teach us that everything that God does, he does for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 hints at this when it says that God created his people for his glory. God acts for the fame of his own name and for his own great pleasure. We might try another analogy here, although every human analogy is ultimately going to fail and fall flat in its attempt to accurately represent this God. But we might say the nature of God is a little bit like the explosive inside of a hand grenade, packed tightly with energy, potential energy, just waiting to explode and burst forth. The glory of God, his wisdom, his power, his might and justice, his incomprehensible love is simply explosive in nature. It's so vast, so limitless, so expansive. And God himself is so generous in his nature, so eager to share that all of the glory and splendor of God according to his definite plan and for his great pleasure explodes outward from the Trinity at the moment of creation, so that all that God has made might join him in rejoicing in who he is. He is the ever-giving God. 
And God did all of this not because he needed to, like you will wrongly hear some people say from time to time, or because he was lonely, or because he was lacking. He did it simply because he wanted to and he could. I mean, that is the definition of for his own great pleasure. And here's too, we see the magnitude of his glory, that God has done nothing out of necessity. Most of what you do is done out of necessity. But out of a desire to share himself and give himself and make his own glory known, God made the universe from nothing so that the cosmos might sing his praise for as long as he permits it to be. Now, so much more could be said, but I think I'm already going long on time. So let me say one more thing about God in the beginning before I give us some application. This is the beginning of God creating and shaping and making reality, but it's not the beginning of God plotting and planning and determining how the story of this creation will unfold. I mean, we can't go back before Genesis 1-1 in the historical record, but God, in fact, does reveal that he was engaged in something before Genesis 1-1. We have to wait many hundreds of pages in our Bibles before we get to that part. But I want to show you and I ask you to turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Some people do ask the question, what was God doing before the beginning? And I've already explained that he was enjoying himself. But... Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, gives us another answer to that question. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Did you catch it there? I hope you did. I tried to emphasize it. There in verse 4, the Apostle Paul reveals something truly astounding. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God. But Ephesians tells us that before God began this marvelous work of creation, He'd already set in motion a plan for us to be united to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, 11 years ago, we planted Maricopa Springs, and um, I can admit to you that in starting this church, in, in creating this church, if you will, if you'll give me grace in saying that, we didn't have anything close to a plan. <laughs> and the little bit of a plan that we did have didn't end up going as planned. And maybe your life is a little bit like that as well. 
that where you plot and plan, it rarely comes to fruition quite like you dream or hope it will. But God, before the foundations of the world, planned to make you one of his own, planned to redeem you and give you life everlasting, to rescue you out of your sin and condemnation. From before the foundation of the world, he planned to make you his child. And not one of the crazy curveballs in all of human history has been able to keep him from that plan. So in the beginning, God. And our God created the heavens and the earth. But before that beginning, our God wrote in the permanent ink of his own blood, his fail-proof plan to make you a child of God. So how should we respond to all these musings about God and his existence from before the beginning? Three quick things. First, fear this God. Fear this God. The problem with the world today and throughout human history is that man has no fear of God. We fear our boss, we fear coronavirus, we fear all kinds of things, but we don't fear God. He is God and you are not God. And all the counsel of his will comes to pass. He judges justly, he loves relentlessly, he forgives graciously, and he is more than powerful to bring about everything that he ordains. And let your heart be captivated by awe and by reverence for this God. Set your life to the work of pleasing this God. Second, I would tell you, worship this God. Any other thing that you give your heart to in praise or adoration, any person, it's nothing. Nothing. Every idea, every concept, anything material and immaterial, it all comes from God. And without him, it would not even exist. And so all wonder and worship and awe, all adoration and praise and devotion should pass from us through any object that might come to us up unto the one who is above and beyond all things, that he might be glorified. He alone is worthy of your loyalty your allegiance, your devotion. He alone is glorious. And he should be the desire that captivates your heart. Third, I would say, trust this God. Believe this God. Rest in this God. He alone transcends this creation. After the mountains crumble and the seas dry up and the stars cease their nuclear fusion, God will remain. His word will endure and his purposes will stand. And I know that you might think that your life is out of control right now. I know that many people in this room are dealing with things that lead them to feel like the world is crumbling around them. I know that you might be facing incredible difficulties. Things that are far beyond your capacity to deal with. But these things are not difficult for this God. The one who spoke all things into existence and from eternity past has always been delightfully in joy in himself. For him, these things are not difficult. 
Or maybe worse, you actually don't feel a sense of dependency and you think that you can handle this on your own. Let me assure you that you can't and you shouldn't try and that God is trustworthy. You are not and he alone is competent to lead you, to guide you, to bear you up through this life. Trust this God. He was there before the beginning was. He wrote the first chapter, and you can be sure that he will write the last chapter. In fact, he's already told you that it is written. And if you keep your faith in Jesus, then what's written in that last chapter is your name in the book of life, written with the blood of Christ. That was his plan from before the beginning. 